Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula, and my job here is to help Paul run through the big stories of the week that have appeared on his website, thisiscommonsense.org. Now, thisiscommonsense.org is the site of Common Sense with Paul Jacob. That's his daily column. He's been writing it for quite a long time. And today there's even a bigger historical interest because we started the week with John Brown. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. You got that guy? And Paul, you began the week writing about John Brown, so I suppose you want to start this podcast talking about John Brown. Is that not right? I do want to start talking about John Brown. And maybe the best way to look at John Brown is to start where I somewhat concluded in uh, Monday's piece to emancipate. It was the anniversary over the weekend of the raid on Harper's Ferry. John Brown and his 21 raiders who were with him, what was it, seven black, 14 white. And it didn't go very well, but it was uh, 1859. He wants to do something to you know, get rid of slavery to free slaves. Uh, and so he raids Harper's Ferry to both get munitions to arm these newly to be freed uh, slaves and doesn't work so well. He's pretty quickly kind of stuck in Harper's Ferry and then federal troops could come. But uh, my whole life, I had kind of learned, you know, hey, yeah, he was right about slavery, but he was kind of a lunatic. And of course, there there are uh, what would be called war crimes, crimes against humanity that, you know, he may have kind of slaughtered some people in uh, uh, in Kansas and the Potawatomi massacre. And anyway, so, you know, I, I the the point of Monday's piece was not to say John Brown's the greatest guy ever, but was to say that what he did at Harper's Ferry was the act of a hero and not the act of, and not a, a terrible act. Years ago, I, I went to Harper's Ferry and um, I didn't know much about it other than kind of the, you know, I mean, I'd seen the movie uh, a few times. Uh, I don't know if people remember it, but kind of a funny old movie. Uh, it wasn't funny, but but when I think back of it, and it, it was not, you know, sophisticatedly done. But uh, I didn't really have a sense for where he fit. And one thing that that caused me to reevaluate was quotes at the museum there, which is much nicer today, I understand. But at the time, it was a very small museum. But it had some quotes on the wall by uh, Frederick Douglass and Henry David Thoreau. And of course, Thoreau is always kind of put up as the, you know, nonviolent civil disobedience. And Thoreau certainly practiced nonviolent civil disobedience. But here's what he had to say about John Brown in uh, a plea for Captain Brown that he wrote after the event. And it was basically uh, asking people to spare John Brown's life, who was, John Brown was executed in December after the raid and in uh, October. Thoreau says, it was his peculiar doctrine that a man has a perfect right to interfere by force with the slaveholder in order to rescue the slave. I agree with him. So here is Henry David Thoreau saying, I agree with John Brown that he has a right to use force to save a slave from enslavement. Uh, and, and I agree. I agree too. And it seems to me that that puts it in a different light, that you could still decide John Brown should have spent some time in prison for what he did in Kansas or what he did somewhere else. But um, it, it is something that I think if I were on the jury as I, as I finish this piece, I basically said, if I were on his jury, I would vote to acquit for this particular crime because it was an act, a good act, not a bad act. Um, and then the other thing that I think is so interesting about it is how much, uh, how much John Brown's action 
led to the Civil War. And, and some people, certainly libertarians, have argued, you know, Britain got rid of slavery without there being a civil war. Uh, and the Civil War is the most deadly event in American history. Um, so it's, you know, you hate that there had to be a civil war. But I, I think the institution of slavery and the way it developed in the United States was different than the way it developed in Britain and other places. And, and uh, partly because the U.S. was a colony. Um, and so it just became very tough to uproot it. And, and Frederick Douglass, for one, believed that John Brown made it certain that slavery would end. Uh, he said, until this blow was struck, the prospect for freedom was dim, shadowy, and uncertain. The irrepressible conflict was one of words, votes, and compromises. When John Brown stretched forth his arm, the sky was cleared, and the clash of arms was at hand. You know, you hate to think of the clash of arms being at hand, that John Brown spurred on the Civil War, except, you know, if it takes a war to end slavery, that happens to be something I think, I think wars are worth fighting for. Anyway, I think it's interesting the way that we have dealt with John Brown as a society in two ways. One, I think that, that there has been this desire to make him a madman because it's very tough for authorities to say, hey, this time, this time that they you know, came armed to start, in essence, some sort of insurrection was a really good time because the authorities would like every insurrection to be a bad insurrection and every act of violence against the powers that be to be a bad thing. Even if the powers that be are doing bad, it would be better to let them do bad than to stop them with violence. I don't happen to believe that way. And frankly, the founders of this country and the framers of the Constitution didn't believe that way either. Um, and I think most Americans don't believe that way. They do believe you have a right to step out and refuse to obey a law or to even bring arms forth to say, no, we're not going to let you do what you think you're going to do, or we're not going to let you take us and force us to do something. And, um, and so I can, you know, you can understand the, the motivation, uh, but it's, it's the wrong motivation. And it's important, I think, to discuss John Brown because it is important to show that, okay, here's an instance in which maybe it was justified or you know, what could he have done differently? You can see a, a high school, a junior high class, a college class discussing John Brown and, and you know, was it right? Was it wrong? All these kind of things. And it, it, I think, I think people who look at it uh, openly a lot more are going to say that he was right. But there's another part of it, too. I think there is, like, I think it was so important. Some of my heroes uh, growing up, I read about the, the White Rose students at the University of Munich in Germany, and they stood up. I mean, they didn't use violence. It was totally nonviolent. Of course, they were guillotined. So, so the, the, the nonviolence didn't work out so well for them either. Uh, but, but they weren't alone. There were all kinds of people who stepped up against Hitler and lost their lives. Uh, some escaped, but, but many lost their lives. And, and I think it's important to tell that. We know that the majority of Germans did not violently resist the Nazis, um, especially once they had power and resistance was what a lot of people would say futile. Um, and so, you know, the same is, is sort of true in the United States. I think there were probably a lot of other people who would have said, you know what, I'd, I'd like to take up arms against slavery, but we're afraid that that means I die. And people are really against dying. And, and so, you know, that, that kind of happens, but it's, it's also important to show what 
this society did to get rid of slavery. And it doesn't mean that, that there's no racism, that the world's perfect, that the United States is perfect. That's not the point of any of this. But the point is that a bunch of people did step up. And those people were black and brown and white. And it's, you know, his raiding party, uh, the first person killed was a free African-American who was killed by John Brown's raiding party. Uh, they told him to stop. He didn't stop. And they, they killed him. Um, but, but if you look at what this country did from John Brown to the Civil War, you've got hundreds of thousands of people who gave their life to end slavery. And that's something that has to be recognized as well. And in the same way that for someone I had, a uh, when I was a kid, maybe 18, 19 years old, I worked at this parking garage in Little Rock, Arkansas. And uh, one of the guys who worked there was an old guy who's in his 70s, which to me at that time was, you know, what, what 180 would be today. Um, and he lost two brothers in World War II in the Pacific Theater fighting against the Japanese. He hated the Japanese, hated their guts, hated every single Japanese person. And, you know, I think that's stupid. But boy, I sure understand it. And, um, and, and so it's, you know, you, you can kind of understand people who want to make it this race's fault or this country's people's fault or the Germans. The Germans were terrible people. But I look at Germany and I look at Japan and I look post-war and I think, isn't it funny? how easy it was for them as a society to adjust to freedom, to relative freedom and democracy of some sort, uh, of a good sort, you know, relative to the rest of the world. And, uh, and yeah, it was really easy, which tells you something about those societies that the problem was not, boy, Japanese people just want, they just like to take over other countries or German people just like to take over other countries. It's not something inherent in the DNA of those people. And in the same way, that's not inherent, that racism and a desire for slavery is not inherent in North American white folks either. Um, or in, in North American natives who of course, you know, the American Indian uh, uh, as it's been called, who also had slavery. So it's, it's, it's just a, you know, people talk about we have to teach history. Let's teach all of it. And let's pay attention to it because, yes, horrible things have happened. Um, and, and our government continues to do it. I mean, that's what, what we're here for, basically, is to try to keep our government on the right track. But having some judgment and common sense about how the world works and the history of the world and where we stand, uh, the United States has been a tremendous positive in the history of mankind. And I don't say that not because we're magical and God likes us more, but because we happen to come at a place in history where the, the desire for freedom got to be free and got to be implemented to some more degree than other times and places. And that's, in other words, we're terribly lucky, but at the same time that we're terribly lucky to have had that level of freedom, it's still ours. Everything we produced, we produced it. The wealth that exists in America, we Americans, many of whom are, are deceased, but we Americans produced it. Our government didn't magically produce it. Other people didn't ship it to us for free from other countries. We produced it. And, uh, and the freedom that we have, our ancestors helped create that and improve on it. And, and in recent generations, it's been improved on. And so to look at the history of America and to have nothing but disdain is, I think, to be blind, deaf, dumb, and blind. 
Yeah, I agree with that part of what you're saying. And generally, you know, John Brown has always been sort of a weird hero for me as well. Uh, partly because, you know, it's hard to be against slavery since you believe in liberty. I mean, that's, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And that's one of the things that I object to about the young, the young CRT people these days is that they use the fact of slavery in the past as an argument against liberty now. Uh, yes. that's, that is, to me, the stupidest argument that's been marshaled in human history. It's just dumb. However, however, there, I go even further, and, and what makes me, and one of the things I disagree with maybe about you is I don't think slavery was about, chiefly about racism. It became over time, but it didn't start about racism, and it didn't end about racism. Uh, the institution was about greed. I would agree with that. When you slave, enslave people, and you take away their property, it's just like when you tax them and, and redistribute their wealth. The recipients are greedy for what that for those for those goods. And one of the things that happened during the Civil War, and one of the reasons I'm less enthusiastic about the outcome of the Civil War, is that we swapped the institution of chattel slavery for the institution of democracies, of the ownership of all by all and the transfer state. Imperialism first, but the transfer state came on quickly on its heels. And the idea of getting ahead at the expense of others was brought into politics in a big way by the end of the 19th century. It was a bigger, bigger state, no question about it. That and and war, you know, it's one of the reasons they say war is the health of the state. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I have a lot of mixed feelings about a lot of that. The most interesting person to me as a thinker in that period was Lysander Spooner, uh, a jurist and you know, practicing lawyer in Boston. And uh, he was an anti-slavery person. In fact, he convinced Frederick Douglass that William Lloyd Garrison was wrong and that the Constitution did not justify slavery so that we shouldn't chuck the Constitution. He, uh, that was his argument in uh, uh, one of his early books about slavery. And uh, it became the sort of the platform of the Free Soil Party. And it was very influential. But Lysander Spooner was one of the men in New England who was backing John Brown. He actually came up with a plan that was very similar and published a plan that was very similar to John Brown's raid. And the idea was to free slaves through, uh, through illegal means. But he thought that was entirely legal since slavery was, is, was illegal. Right, right. And that was the argument that he gave, a natural law argument, is that at some point you have to basically re reject the uh, laws that exist if the laws are so unjust. Like the Secret Six, the six major figures yes. in which, which we mentioned on Sunday, he got away with it. He was not accused of treason. Nevertheless, his most important work after the Civil War was called No Treason. He was very concerned about the idea of treason. And I believe, wasn't John Brown executed for treason? Treason and insurrection, I think. Yeah, insurrection charges. is possible as an argument, <clears throat> though I don't think really they made the case. And it looks to me that he didn't get a fair trial. Uh, very clearly, I don't think he. I don't <laughs> think he, he, he. He may have lost, even if he did, but I, I don't think he did. I think the circumstances were were such. But, but yeah, I think. Uh, uh, I think when you when you think about you know the supporters behind Brown, that's also something that never really comes out. That this was not just one guy who got this crazy idea to start to free slaves and arm them and, and create bigger problems for the slaveholders in the South. I thought it was very interesting. And we over the, and this is something we do. And then people who come to the site regularly, uh, obviously are aware of this or get the email. Uh, but every day we have a thought, somebody's wise, witty or, or ignorant statement or something that's worth, uh, worth commenting on and thinking about. And, then we also have a today, which is what happened in history on this day that has some relevance to freedom, which is kind of our favorite thing. And we had something to talk about the raid that started on the 16th of October, late at night. And when it ended on the 18th, but on the 17th, uh, this is something you had found that I was not really, I had heard about it, but I'd never really seen anything about it. But uh, you might mention what what we posted for the today on on uh, what was uh, Saturday Sunday uh, about the financier the financiers of uh, of John Brown. It was a post called "The Backers of John Brown," and it was basically 
relating the first few pages of The Secret Six by, let's see, uh, Edward J. Renahan Jr. And it's an interesting book. And it's, it's about the financial backers of John Brown's reign. And uh, they lasted 50 years. I mean, three of them lasted, well, two of them lasted 50 years and, and the wife of another lasted, you know, until... Right. Was it? What would that be? Nineteen oh nine, I guess it was. I, I didn't. I don't, I don't remember exactly that. Maybe nineteen oh nine, right? It's a really fascinating book. I recommend it in part because it gives a different way of looking at the world. Uh, these are people who had different ideas, even than people now, and even people then. And since they were instrumental, not only in John Brown starting his little gambit, they were instrumental in not backing him up. They felt guilty they did not feel very comfortable about what they had done because they let John Brown get executed, but they themselves were off the hook. And right. so that's an interesting story. And I think that people it's worth reading about because uh, it, it really is an interesting set of arguments and ideas. They had these, the, the men that actually helped John Brown, you know, the, the white men in the North. I think what's also interesting to me always in these sorts of historical things, when they talk about who funded something, I know from being someone who works politically and who also raises money to work politically, that if you don't find any funders to help you do what you're trying to do, it almost never gets done. And so these folks who were willing to write big checks. I don't know that you wrote big checks in the day, but you did whatever. You went to the banking and, and got some coin and, uh, you, you know, they did have paper money. But anyway, you, you, uh, the funders of John Brown were critical or John Brown's not going to be around very long. And I, I think back to, and especially in, in the, today's politics where anyone who has money is evil and terrible. And the reality is, people who have worked and have some resources, that's the beautiful part about capitalism because you know what they do? They take that and they do something that they think is important. And if you think it is too, you get to participate. You didn't even have to make the money. So it's, I, I like all that. And I think one of the most interesting things I've ever heard from a historical standpoint about the importance of funders is that when uh, King George brought back the, Mass the governor of Massachusetts during colonial days, his first question was, what are the state of John Hancock's finances? John Hancock was funding the American Revolution. And if he got hurt financially, we might be Great Britain West or whatever. I mean, come on. It, he was hugely important, that important that that was the first question the king asked, what, how's he doing financially? Because he's putting money in this thing and it's killing us. And, uh, and so that's the way I look. You know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Soros, although he's done some things that I, I agreed with, with, with his, his money. But I have a ton of respect for people who, instead of giving money to something where they'll all applaud and your name will be on some building at a college or a hospital or whatever, and obviously these are important too, and I applaud you for doing it. So the fact that I say people will applaud you, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But people who give politically take such risks, they could just live the good life. And instead, they take risks because they care about the future. And it's a beautiful thing, even when they're wrong, they're misguided, they're on the other side, whatever it is, these people, it's, it's a lot like lawyers. Um, you know, you, people tend, tend to not like lawyers, but you know what, if you're ever in trouble and you need a lawyer, you really appreciate them. And uh, so it's, it's the same sort of thing. If you're, if you're ever trying to accomplish something in this world, you appreciate the people who provide the money to do it, whether it's the bank or in politics, uh, banks, are, banks are too conservative to give money to people in politics. You need, you need folks like John Hancock and like these folks who gave money uh, to, to John Brown, because you know, you know that that, ha and that happened throughout all of history. 
this is not a new thing, you know. So, so uh, I think that's that was an interesting bit of history. Is Harper's Ferry in West Virginia now? It is now in West Virginia. It's right. It's right where Maryland, Virginia, and uh, you know the very northern part of uh, Virginia, and right where Maryland gets skinny and connects with uh, West Virginia. But it's technically in West Virginia. It was in Virginia uh, in 1859. I asked this just as a way of segue into the uh, piece from. The next day, I think, was uh, Virginia's for parents. Yes, yes. It's funny because I was going to segue a different way into that uh, authoritarian ardor, which is is basically that the same when you mentioned CRT and so on. That, but I think you're right. The Virginia is the better the better uh, segue here. So uh, Virginia which has these off, off year elections. We have our legislature, I live in Virginia, and our governor's races, not in the non-presidential year, but in the odd numbered year. So it's not only not a presidential year, it's never even a congressional general election year. So it's always in the odd year and they call it an off, off. And I, I can't think of any reason to do it that way, except to try to dodge as many voters as possible. And, and have fewer people make the decision instead of more people. But in the Virginia race, this is a, a state that I point out has become much more uh, blue. Started out, uh, you know, years ago when I first moved to Virginia, especially in the county I'm in, was a solid, solid red county. And then it became purple, and now it is pretty solidly blue. And uh, uh, the last 13 statewide races, going back all the way to 2012, uh, Democrats have won every single one. So it's, uh, it's a tough place for Republicans right now. And yet the governor's race has become very, very close. Uh, businessman Glenn Youngkin uh, is, is running against former governor Terry McAuliffe, who was the Clinton pal. Uh, did a, he may have been his campaign finance uh, uh, treasurer or whatever for the presidential campaign and so on, very close to the Clintons, and was governor before. In Virginia, it's a one-term limit for governor, but the governor can come back, although rarely have they come back. So it'll be interesting, too. I think there's a slight drag on McAuliffe because Virginians aren't used to a governor coming back and may kind of not like it. And maybe I'm just you know, imposing my own view on the race, but I do think there's an, an element of that. But the biggest statement out of this race is the last debate where they're talking about schools and McAuliffe basically says, I'm not going to let parents tell schools, you know, parents shouldn't be telling schools what to teach their kids. And of course, that's exactly wrong. <laughs> you know, what we desperately need in education is customers, and not just customers, but customers with clout, like customers are supposed to have. And they need to be listening to parents. And of course, we had written something that was a much broader, uh, talking about a lot of different things, but led off by talking about uh, McAuliffe's statement. And Doug, uh, not sure what the last name is, I don't, I don't know him uh, that I know of, but at the website, uh, a fellow named Doug said, hey, you've, you've taken this out of context. That's not what he was saying, really. Well, it is what he was saying, really. And the more you look into it, the more you see, they were talking about a number of different things. There are transgender issues in the schools, about pronouns, about bathrooms, uh, about locker rooms, so on and so on. Lots of fights about those. And just to, just as a, a tangent, um, and we'll probably talk about this more next week, uh, but it has come out that there was a rape, um, at least allegedly, in one of the schools and that the administration moved that person who was accused of rape, who happens to have been born as, as a male on the birth certificate and was wearing a dress reportedly 
and went into the girl's restroom and allegedly raped someone, that has not really been publicized, had not been publicized. In fact, at a, at a board meeting, they said there had been no such thing as that. And that's when the father of the girl who alleges she was raped by the apparently, from what we're told, uh, transgender person, uh, got very upset and was arrested. And there was some argument at the time about whether the police were, you know, went too far or whether he was just, you know, saying too much and too aggressive or whatever. But now we start to learn the rest of the story. And of course, they're trying to make policy and saying that this didn't happen. What, what happened didn't happen. And of course, any reasonable person out there realizes the fact that one, it, this does not suggest that transgender people rape people in the bathrooms all the time. Um, if, if this is a transgender woman, you know, maybe maybe his orientation changed from hetero to, to homosexual or this is ridiculous. This is not about a, a transgender person and it's not a slap. I, I think you'll see people will say, oh, everyone's going to think that now uh, they're going to make it up to where every transgender person is a potential rapist and so on. That's not the point of this. And in fact, the, the worst thing that could happen is to cover it up because then people can't believe you. And then people can argue that it's happening all the time because if it were, how would they know you're going to lie to them? And so it's just, it's a horrible thing, but they not only aren't, didn't complain about it. They then transferred when my wife told me the story. That's how I first heard about it. I said, what are they, a Catholic church or something? They transferred the, the kid from one school to another. And now there's an incident in the other school where he dragged some, some girl into a, a, a empty room. And, you know, I mean, this is, so this is what we're, so there was that issue. There's also been the issue of McAuliffe when he was governor before vetoed legislation that would have allowed parents to say, no, my kid's not reading Tony Morrison's best-selling Pulitzer Prize, Nobel Prize. I don't know what prize. She's won a bunch of prizes for it. And I know people who've read it. I think my daughter's read it. My wife's read it. I have not read it. But my wife said it's a pretty graphic. She, she wasn't so happy she was reading the book after she read it. Which is the book? What's the name of the book? Oh, uh, Beloved. Oh, okay. I think it's Beloved. It's the one, and it's it's a slave story and and rape. So it's not as if it's not as if uh, you know. I suspect that it may be one where I would not object at all because of the, although I might you know if the kid said I don't want to read that I would be okay with that too, but it's it doesn't strike me that it's that it's purient in the sense of that it's purposely trying to be sexual it, it's a rape scene there's different things and there's some brutality and and uh, so you know you people have to judge that but that's why the parents are the ones who should be judging because it's their kids not the state's kids and so McAuliffe vetoes this in the debate um, so it, it wasn't clear what he was saying exactly about where parents should or shouldn't be involved. But the more you look at it, you realize he doesn't think the parents should be involved in anything other than, oh, they can come to PTA, they can come to, you know, uh, open house or whatever, or, or parent teacher conference and be told what's happening, but to object, to make some decision concerning their kid. Heck no. So, um, so this issue, so the interesting thing is, I, when I first got this comment, I thought, oh, wait, maybe I somehow missed that. And I realized, you know, I didn't really hear what was said, you know, a minute before or a minute after this had been all over the media, you know, just uh, nonstop. So I thought if somehow it had been pulled out of context, somebody, you know, the Washington Post or, or any number of papers that are defending McAuliffe and campaigning for him against, against Youngkin would have pointed out this is misleading. 
Well, it turns out it's not at all misleading. It is McAuliffe's policy. And, uh, and so it would be interesting to see. I think people have gotten so used to worshiping the schools and education as some mystical force that because the government does it and it's public, is going to be wonderful. Uh, education is a force. It has, it's not mystical. It's very practical. You know stuff. You can do stuff. Um, but they don't seem to have any interest in that part of education. Anyway, this will be a very interesting race. Um, if if uh, Youngkin wins, if the Republican wins this, it'll send some shockwaves, which I think are good because uh, I like I, I want you know uh, Republicans to win. I like I I dislike them less than I dislike Democrats. But the bigger thing is it will send a message that you step too far in being Mr. I love education and want to spend everything I can on education and so on and so on, which has kind of been the mantra and the the voters are kind of, well, I don't know. uh, That sounds like a good idea to me. That isn't going to work if you're stopping on parents. And frankly, you can't push CRT. And I'm just talking about the the racist anti-racism agenda. I'm not talking about the technical theory being taught, but you can't, you can't pull that racist stuff and not expect that parents are going to be up in arms. And, and then when you see that they're up in arms and you've got all kinds of political support to say, forget the parents. And of course, here's the, here's the curveball that we haven't even talked about, <laughs> which I think is why we need to talk about this you know, in in one of the commentaries, the FBI, of course, after some of these different arguments and somebody arrested at a board meeting in Loudoun County, which is one county over, um, and I think he was arrested uh, because the police didn't didn't behave well, and probably because he was, they were urged to arrest him by the by the council and other authorities. But um, but this whole thing, after some of that, then you've got Merrick Garland, the attorney general, saying that they need to investigate parents as domestic terrorists and so on. Um, this has gotten insane. And at the very core of it is very simple. They have no respect for parents. You know, maybe CRT or maybe this anti-racism, racism is what most parents want. Well, then that, you know, I I wouldn't like it. I didn't send my kids to public school anyway. But, um, and I sure wouldn't if that were the case. I wouldn't even consider it. But, But it's not as if they're saying, hey, we're trying to figure out the best way and we just disagree. They are trying to have it their way with our kids. Let's hope that this sends a message that that's not the way to play. Well, to me, it sounds authoritarian, which leads us right into authoritarian ardor, which was for October 30th. No, October 20th, not October 30th. (laughs) We're covering next week. I'm taking the week off. No, that very nice segue there. This is uh, this is Glenn Greenwald, who basically went on a I really shouldn't call it a rant because he doesn't rant the way some people rant. He's a pretty reasonable guy, but uh, I have really enjoyed, I've, I've subscribed to his Substack thing. When, when he had the problem during the campaign, he helped start the intercept as a place for real journalism to be done. And then during the 2020 campaign, when he wrote something about some of the ridiculous things that Biden was doing they censored it and wouldn't run it unless he took out the negative stuff on Biden. That's our, that's our fourth estate at work. And so he went to Substack. And as soon as I heard that and went there and I subscribed and, and uh, so I get his emails and, and I think he's the best thing going. Uh, uh, I also now subscribe to Matt Tahibi, uh, uh, which I think I just butchered his last name, but I think he's very good, but these are folks who, both of them come from the left. That's their natural perspective, but have just tired of this 
authoritarianism. And what Greenwald was talking about is that Pew has done some research and that the numbers of people who want the government to censor news that's not right, misinformation, as if government has like a special sheet that tells them what's good information and what's misinformation. This is insane. This is the antithesis of America. Free speech is everything. Free speech is more important than the Second Amendment because no matter how many guns you have in your home, if you can't talk to each other, it's not going to work out very well. It's absolutely frightening. And what, what Greenwald's talking about is not just democratic politicians becoming more and more in favor of government censorship and control of information and of communications. It's Democrats. It's not just the politicians. It's regular Democrats. It's people I know and love. And so it's really scary. And of course, it's part of it's being driven by the fact that the news media leans that way. So if we just or if only if we could stop Fox from talking and only MSNBC and NBC and ABC and, and, and CNN can talk, then everyone will get the right information. That is the operating theory uh, behind all this. And it's easy to see where Republicans who are getting less in favor of any sort of government control in that way. And the same is true with, with uh, social media, that the Democrats are becoming more and more in favor of them uh, being regulated, of them controlling who can speak. And of course, they like them controlling who can speak because they keep swatting at conservatives much, much more. Uh, than, than liberals on, on places like Facebook. So um, an important bit of information and Glenn Greenwald pointing out how the world has flipped. I mean, in the 1960s, you had the left talking about free speech on campus. We have to be able to speak freely. And today they are against free speech. I understand people who this is my main issue or this is my main issue. It affects my life. I care more about this than that. And so we looking on might, might not see that as, uh, I don't think you're very pro-freedom because I think this issue is more important than that issue. Um, and I think that, that we have to let people have their own values where that's concerned. And you have to kind of respect that someone might like a Democrat because they favor certain social issues that the Republicans are bad on. And somebody else might say, but the economics is more important. That's why I'm voting for the Republican um, or vice versa. But if you're against freedom of speech, you know, there's just, there's no recovering from that. That is, I mean, that is the essence of what the Chinazis, the, uh, my favorite term for the uh, evil rulers in Beijing, that's what they're all about, is really a, a tough, new, richer, more powerful system of government that goes back to the old way of you, peon, peasant, you shut up, we'll tell you what you can say or can't say. And that's, and, and especially, it's one thing to have that view in the Middle Ages or at different times in human history, when people could at least get on a boat and sail to some other continent or go into the woods or do something. Today, you know, anywhere on the planet, they're, they're, they've got your heat signature and they've got your, you know, they're doing a, a you know, a scan. And it, this is a increasingly technologically advanced world in which we have people in positions of power who've stopped believing in the most basic freedom that has changed the whole world for the better, away from kings and emperors to some sort of respect and, and you know, rights for the average person. And, and I'm not overselling it because, look, you know, in the best places – 
and in the worst places, they haven't always they haven't always been that respectful. But it's a whole order of magnitude different than it was hundreds of years ago when people had no rights. And the idea that we would return to that and that we would return to that because we can't figure out what's right. We can't figure out the truth unless some big brother somewhere slaps down every opinion other than one that the powerful have bestowed upon us. I mean, that's insane. And I, and I think, and I won't belabor it. It's the antithesis of America. It's the antithesis of what we're all about or should be all about. Well, it makes sense that Beijing Biden would be for that system. It, it, it all comes together in some weird way. It's, it's kind of scary the way it comes together. I have been so scared of Biden and his China connections and so on. But I do have to say that at least thus far, and I'm, I'm for watching him like a hawk the entire time. But thus far, he has the one area that he's kept Trump policies has been China. And it may be that that there's leverage that he's scared. If he makes a move, they're going to be talking about Beijing Biden. But for for whatever reason, he's been he's been very tough on China. He's kept the the Trump policies. He's been very good on Taiwan. He's he's you know, they invited the Taiwanese representative in the U.S. to the inaugural. And, you know, people, and myself included years ago, would have thought, yeah, yeah, that's a real big deal. But if you haven't been invited since 1979, it does kind of signal that, hey, we've figured out our future doesn't lie with the Chinazis. We don't want to be buddy-buddy with the totalitarians. We'd like to be buddy-buddy with the most just amazing success story of freedom and democracy in the world over the last few decades, which is Taiwan. So he's, he's been better about that. But, but that's a great segue to the next piece, which is China cord not quite cut. And we talked about LinkedIn that was literally censoring uh, people's posts for the Chinese, and even suggesting, well, maybe you'll want to edit that and say this instead and so on, as if they're going to help, help kind of persuade you that the Chinese censorship is not really such a bad thing. Couldn't we just change your name here? Or, you know, this wasn't their name, but, but different things that they had written or said. So there's a backlash. LinkedIn decides we're going to change. We're not going to do LinkedIn in China but then kind of out the, the, you know, so they've shut the front door, but out the back door, they're going to do some sort of job posting with China. And what's going to happen when someone puts something in a job posting that the Chinese government doesn't want there? They're going to, they're going to, they're going to kowtow is what they're going to do. No pun intended. And, uh, and so what we point out basically in this piece is um that their relationship with China is fraught with danger. And there's one reason why it's fraught with danger. And that is because the Chinese regime is fraught with danger. And that's what we have to keep remembering. We, you hear all the time different things about, well, hopefully our relationship with China can improve. It's like, these are, in my view, these are Nazis. Um, they're committing genocide. They believe in totalitarianism. If someone has a better term, I'm not, I'm not picky about terminology, but let's, let's call it like it is. And, and that is the problem. And so often the terminology I hear, it's like we talked a couple of weeks ago, where we had to have a piece about uh the Wuhan lab leak and the, and the, you know, trying to find the origin and so on. And so many of these stories, they talk about the investigation in China, you know, that the who ran, there was no investigation. And yet they still talk about it as if it was, or the, the letter that pointed out in the Lancet, well, we know now that was a completely phony letter. 
So it's, it's so easy, I think, for the powers that be, like if, if the American people stop worrying about whether Taiwan is free, whether China is, is committing genocide, the business community, the movers and shakers will be glad to talk to our State Department about how they can help make more money in China. They're not going to care about a lot of this stuff. Some will, but enough won't that if the public's not engaged, um, you know, if, if there wasn't blowback to LinkedIn, LinkedIn would be thinking of ways to help the Chinese government even more to do this. That's what businesses do. These are my customers. How do I help them even more? And so, you know, when there's a problem of a totalitarian genocidal maniac in a hugely powerful position in the world, there's problems sometimes with the way businesses deal with that. But the big problem are the Chinazis. That's the, that's the big problem is that the Chinazis are bad people. And so the more we're dealing with them without realizing that, the more we're in trouble. We're recording this on Thursday, uh, October 21st. Tomorrow, there's a piece coming uh, out by you. And it has something to do, well, it has nothing to do with what we've been talking about. That's true. It's called The Day Cillian Took Control. And I'm just going to let people go read it. I think you'll enjoy it. It's a little different than a lot of our pieces. Uh, one, it's very positive, but it's about grassroots tech. It's about high school students putting their knowledge immediately to work to help people. Uh, it's, a, it's the feel-good story of the week, the day Cillian took control. Anyway, I think people enjoyed it. It's at thisiscommonsense.org, and, uh, and there you have it. Very good. Well, that was the week that was, third full week of October 2021. Uh, did you want to talk about anything else before we sign off? No, I think, we'll, uh, um, I, th I think we got most of the world taken care of. I mean, this is how many more podcasts before it's Nirvana? There you go. Nirvana, one podcast at a time. That's a new plan. <laughs> we'll have to get Chris Novoselich on, and, uh, and he can tell us how, how many more podcasts we have to do until we're Nirvana. You know, some people might need to have that explained. You know Chris. You've served with him on the board of fairvote.org, right? Yes. And I know him because he's a neighbor. Yes. So, so we know Chris, and he's used to be the member, uh, bassist for Nirvana, the famous grunge band. Yes. And... Uh, the biggest rock star I've ever met and one of the most down-to-earth, kind, nice, bright people I think I've ever met as well. Very good. Mm -hmm.